Hello and welcome to this edition of the Heart BMJ podcast. I'm Dr. Alistair Lindsay, and in today's podcast, we'll be discussing a topic we haven't previously addressed, which is bicuspid aortic valve. We'll be discussing a paper which has come to us from the Mayo Clinic in a joint effort with the Hospital Bichat in France uh, by Dr. Hector Michelina and also his co-authors Delphine Detent and Maurice Enriquez Serrano. The paper is entitled Aortic Dilatation Patterns and Rates in Adults with Bicuspid Aortic Valves, a comparative study with Marfan and Degenerative Aortopathy. Dr. Michelina joins me on the line now. Good evening, Hector. Good evening, Alistair. How are you? Fine, thank you. Thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure. Well, we were really grateful to receive this paper at heart because I think it addresses a topic uh, that is very exciting at the moment, which is that of bicuspid aortic valve. Uh, It seems to me that in the last uh, few years, as advanced imaging techniques have really evolved, the subject of, of what we do with bicuspid aortic valve patients, how we monitor them, and I think also very importantly, how we monitor their aortic route and their associated aortopathy has become very important. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the, the field as it stands at the moment? For example, are there routine screening programs or, or how are these patients identified and, and monitored? Yes, uh, uh, thank you so much for the for the invitation, Alistair. And um, let me just uh, first say uh, that... Uh, my first author in this paper, uh, Dr. Delphine Dete, uh, uh, who is uh, an outstanding uh, French cardiologist and researcher, um, exceptional human being, kind friend, mother and wife, unfortunately passed away. Oh, just that's this, terrible. I'm just so sorry this to past hear that. Monday, after a long illness. Right. And um, it is it is the the wish of of of. Uh, my co-authors and myself to to dedicate this uh, not only this uh, podcast but uh, but this uh, paper uh, to her. Well, I quite understand. Well, thank you for for telling us that. But that's obviously very sad news. Well, if you if you're still happy to go ahead, um, maybe you could talk a little bit about the the background to the study and and, and how it came about. Yeah. So so. It is it is important to to recognize that bicuspid aortic valve is the most common congenital um, um, valvulopathy that exists, and over time uh, uh, the research community has realized that it's not only a valvulopathy, but it's also an aortopathy, mm. and um, studies uh, have uh, shown that uh, there are structural abnormalities of the thoracic aortic tissue in bicuspid patients that uh, look similar Mm -hmm. to patients that have Marfan's syndrome, um, which as as we know, uh, carries a defect in the fibrillin one gene. And these uh, both bicuspid aortic valve patients as well as Marfan's patients uh, do have um, a risk of aortic dissection and aortic rupture, which by the way, is the holy grail of the research that's been ongoing, what we really want to find uh, at the end of the day are predictors of who is going to dilate their aortas in a significant manner, number one, and really the holy grail is to find predictors of who is going to have uh, an aortic catastrophe such as an aortic dissection or aortic rupture. Yes. And um, that's one thing you point out, I thought, very importantly at the beginning of your paper, that that is a possibility in the bicuspid aortic valve patients in particular. But 
interestingly, the rates of dissection and aortic valve aneurysm formation appear to be lower in bicuspid aortic valve patients compared to, for example, Marfan's. Is that correct? We believe that the uh, current literature available suggests that even though there are similarities, uh, biological similarities, uh, in the aortopathy of Marfan's and bicuspid aortic valve, it is very likely as well that they are very different clinically. Mm. Uh, and the two differences perhaps may be the um, uh, degree of dilatation and progression of the aortopathy as well as the occurrence of the, of the ultimate outcome of, of uh, dissection and, uh, and, uh, and rupture. So because of those things, Alistair, and because uh, uh, there are several studies uh, before this one looking and trying to define a progression of aortic dilatation. And uh, the other reason is that we had never, or nobody had ever compared uh, with other aortopathies uh, with bicuspid aortic valve. We decided to join our efforts together, um, particularly the large amount of uh, bicuspid aortic valve patients that we have uh, here at Mayo Clinic uh, with the Marfan Center that Bisha Hospital has. Mm and um, um, get our patients together and, uh, and organize them in three groups. Um, a group of bicuspid aortic valve patients matched to Marfan's patients as well as what we call degenerative aortopathy patients, which are patients that don't have bicuspid valve or Marfan syndrome. So we match these three groups um, by gender, blood pressure, and uh, minimum follow-up time of two years of aortic uh, measurements, of measurements of the aorta, and uh, then compared the phenotypes or patterns of dilatation or patterns of aortopathy between those three groups at baseline. And then we explored how these three aortopathies progressed over a period of about 3.5 years mean. Yes, and uh, the main way you used to, to measure the aortic route was echocardiography, if, if I'm right. Um, did you use any other imaging modalities or in your routine clinical practice, do CT and yes, MRI and play a big know, role? That could be considered a limitation of our study. Uh, the fact that indeed MRI and CT scanning has higher resolution and has the capability of measuring the aorta uh, really perpendicular to the flow mm -hmm. and echocardiography may be a little bit uh, less accurate than CT or MRI. However, echocardiography continues to be the state-of-the-art um, 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 first uh, uh, imaging modality that is used to assess the aorta. And because of that, we did some quality uh, um, assurance in our study such that uh, another um, uh, a researcher measured the aortas as well and compared them to the measurements of, of, of the first author by echocardiography. But also, there were 42 patients that um, concomitantly underwent MRI of their uh, aortas, and we compared these to our measurements by echo, and um, they were actually uh, quite uh, accurate with no significant uh, differences or systematic over or underestimation identified. Right. One other thing, just uh, while we're talking about the methods section of the paper, was I thought you used a very nice, very clear uh, method of distinguishing three different phenotypes of the actual aorta itself, um, which you describe very clearly in your methods section. Could you just tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, 
Yes, uh, and this is work that has uh, began originally by Dr. Fassell and, uh, and uh, particularly by Dr. Della Corte, uh, who is a, an Italian surgeon. Um, um, we are trying, Alistair, to define as simple as we can phenotypes uh, that appear and that are common in bicuspidal aortic valve disease, and, and what we're coming uh, together as a, as a research community is, is, is that there's likely three of them. Uh, one, where the um, uh, relationship between the root, uh, which is basically the sinuses of Valsalva and the ascending aorta, is a normal relationship, where generally the root is a little larger than the tubular ascending aorta. Then we have a root phenotype, uh, and we refer to this when the aortic root is dilated above a certain number, and it is also larger than the tubular ascending aorta. And finally, we have a phenotype, which, by the way, is the more common phenotype that we observed and that others have observed in bicuspid aortic valve, which is the tubular ascending aorta phenotype, where the dilatation occurs mostly at the ascending level, tubular ascending level, and this tubular ascending level is larger than the aortic root. Yeah, that's a very nice classification. I think, as we'll see in a moment, it's a really important way of thinking about these patients. So you followed the patients up, as you said, for an average uh, of over three years. Could you maybe summarize your main findings for us in a few sentences? Yes, uh, we, we found, I believe, um, um, four uh, or five uh, important things that I, that I, that I wish to, to, to convey. We believe the most important finding is that in patients with bicuspid valve, the fastest aortic dilatation rate we observed at the tubular ascending level, and that was about 0.4 millimeters per year as a mean, and it was independent of bicuspid aortic valve morphology. Um, The second one is that um, aortic dilatation particularly the tubular ascending dilatation rate was quite heterogeneous in bicuspid aortic valve, particularly when compared to Marfan's patients, since we found that um, about 40% of bicuspid aortic valves actually did not progress, did not dilate over time, compared only to 20% in Marfan syndrome. Thirdly, in patients with bicuspid aortic valve, a normal diameter at baseline, as we would as logic would dictate, does not predict a lower rate of dilatation. It's actually the other way around. Mm. The younger the patient and the smaller the aorta, and these are findings that have also been corroborated by Dr. De La Corte, um, 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 cause or are associated with faster dilatation of the ascending aorta, which has a research implication uh, for when we have um, targeted therapies, medical therapies, yeah, to prevent yeah. aortic di- dilatation, these should likely be used more in younger patients with smaller diameters, which are the ones that are going to dilate actually faster, to see if medical therapies are, are good at preventing dilatation. I, I, think that's finally, a really, it, I think that's a really important point because at the moment those patients because they are young because the aortic dimensions look normal are probably the ones in some cases we feel least worried about but if the results of your findings are more globally applicable then as you say they could be the ones that we actually have to treat most aggressively. Yes yes 
and then and then finally we corroborate a, a finding that was previously a, a published in Heart by Schaefer and uh, and uh, Dr. Otto, uh, as well as uh, has been published uh, prior by Dr. De La Corte, which is a clear association between type one bicuspid aortic valve, which is to say right and left um, cusp fusion with an aortic phenotype uh, of predominant root dilatation. Um, and we add to this that patients that have this type 1 or typical bicuspid aortic valve with left and right uh, fusion um, it, it, it are independently associated uh, with not only the dilated root, but with further dilatation of the entire proximal aorta, meaning the annulus, the sinuses, and the sinotubular junction, but not the ascending tubular portion, which in our study showed absolutely no relation with uh, the bicuspid aortic valve phenotype. Okay. Okay, so four very uh, interesting findings there, all of which uh, have their own discussion points. Uh, maybe to start with, we could just sort of put it together. Uh, given these findings that the young patients, although they may have normal roots, can dilate very quickly, that the aorta seems to dilate in a different manner for bicuspid aortic valve than in Marfan's patients, that some bicuspid aortic valve patients, in fact, up to 40% don't dilate at all. In the, the more practical terms, how have these findings influenced your practice on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, so so our thoughts on this, and and again, Alistair, this is this is a work in 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 progress. Sure. Yeah. Um. Um. We believe that dilatation above the sinotubular junction should definitely be closely monitored in bicuspid patients, and uh, from our findings, we think that the risk of dilatation, uh, uh, um and the aortic surveillance should not be based on bicuspid aortic valve morphology because we do not find significant uh, relationship uh, between specific morphologies and dilatation. However, however, um, it is important to recognize that there is this association between the type 1 bicuspid aortic valve and the root morphology. Um, an important thing is that systematic follow-up, and this is derived from my previous comments, is warranted in all bicuspid aortic valve patients because of the um, tremendous heterogeneity that we see in a progression, such that the only way to recognize or identify progression is to actually follow the patient. There's really no other way at this point to predict what, um, uh, which patients are at higher risk of progressing faster or not. And then finally, um, um, we, we observed that uh, the fastest dilatation portion of the aorta for bicuspid aortic valve patients is the ascending tubular yeah. and not so much the sinuses, which is a, a little bit uh, um, of a, of a uh, corroboration, we may say, of a previous study uh, from, from our institution showing that uh, when patients uh, do not have dilatation of the root, and they undergo surgical elective replacement of the ascending aorta for dilatation, that root will likely not dilate significantly over a long time, such that preserving the root in those patients seems to be adequate. 
Yeah, and I think that's a really important finding because of the huge clinical implications and, of course, the technicality difficulties in, in doing a root operation as opposed to a root Absolutely. sparing operation. So that's a, a really important finding. Just, again, on a, a practical level, do you have an established protocol for following these patients up or is it still done very much depending on how quickly you feel the root is dilating? For example, yeah. do the majority of patients come back to your clinic annually or do you do it more frequently than that? Yeah. You know, our, our, our protocol and my, and my personal thoughts uh, on, this, on this issue are, are as follows. If one has a bicuspid aortic valve patient uh, that is identified, uh, one should measure the aorta carefully um, measuring all segments, including sinuses, sinotubular junction, ascending aorta, as distally as possible, going f- from parasternal, uh, in other words, on the parasternal left position of the echo, going uh, uh, intercostal space higher to try to identify the the furthest ascending aorta that one can identify, I see, and yeah. also use the right parasternal imaging for evaluation of the ascending aorta if those measurements are clearly below 40 millimeters or so, I think that follow-up by echocardiography annually is appropriate. If those measurements are above 40 millimeters or so, um, wherever they are, sinuses or ascending aorta, and particularly, as we have said, the ascending aorta, well, then I think it is reasonable to confirm that this is true by a somewhat superior imaging techniques such as CT or MRI, if there is appropriate correlation between these two, then one can choose to follow the patient by echo or or MRI-CT. If there are significant um, um, discrepancies, one should follow the measurement of CT or MRI. And then what I do is when I find a patient for the first time with a dilated aorta, I want to see them back in six months and repeat the imaging because I want to know if they're dilating fast. Yes. If I see them back in six months and they are not dilating fast, meaning they have stayed stable or dilated minimally, such as one millimeter or so, um, then I will see them yearly. Now, there are two important things that I have to say about that. One is, there is a range of error within echocardiography, Alistair, that cardiologists need to recognize. And we believe that that's about plus minus two millimeters. Right. So if an echocardiogram comes measuring one or two millimeters above, it it might well be within the range of error. Okay. You know, this is a little less for other techniques such as CT and MRI where one millimeter, I would say, if it's appropriately measured, you know, and compared to the previous study, well, one would believe that, um, that you know, it is enlarging a little bit. The other final issue, which is very interesting and, and has been shown now in several studies by Tanasulis, by De La Corte, by our group, is that the bicuspid aortic valve does not dilate, in, in other words, that, that aortic dilatation in bicuspid aortic valve does not occur at enormous uh, uh, amounts. For example, the guidelines say, and this is all consensus, that dilatation of more than 0.5 centimeters, in other words, more than 5 millimeters per year, okay, should prompt elective replacement of the of the aorta. However, what we all find is that the mean 
increase by year of these aortas is in the range of 0.5 millimeters. Mm. So much less. And the maximum ones that we have reported and De La Corte has reported is about one a, a, a millimeter per year, such that it is very difficult, we believe, to find uh, patients dilating five millimeters per year or more, such that, you know, we don't know what the value of that uh, indication in the guidelines is, and I wonder if some of the area of study should be dedicated at looking at uh, if measurements or increases in measurements uh, less than five millimeters do have prognostic value. Well, that's a great point, and actually, that's a, for our final part of the podcast. That's a, what I wanted to discuss with you: is moving on from this nice description that you have. Where do you think we should go next? So absolutely, looking at smaller increases in aortic size and their prognostic implications, I think, is one. Something else is, obviously, this is an area where genetics is important, and it doesn't seem to me that there's a big tie-up at the moment between genotyping and the phenotypes you've described. Would you agree? Is that an area that we need to focus on more? Absolutely. I think, I think there, are, there are two critical things that we have to look at. There is now uh, the availability of 4D flow magnetic resonance, which has been able and opened the door to assessment of, the, uh, of not only the, the anatomic aspect of the aorta, but the functional aspect of the aorta in terms of analyzing flow patterns in the aorta with bicuspid aortic valve and analyzing a functional um, um, aspects of the aorta like distensibility and strain of the aorta. And studies are actively done and being published um, from several groups in that regard. That could generate new imaging biomarkers that could uh, be risk stratifiers uh, for um, outcomes of the aorta in bicuspid aortic valve patients. And, of course, there is no doubt about it, we believe there has to be a genetic component that uh, determines uh, whether a patient will dissect or not, and thus the importance of very large uh, retrospective and prospective cohorts of bicuspid aortic patients to determine if there are genetic biomarkers that we could use to uh, determine if a patient is at very high risk of dissection such that they could get uh, a, a potential uh, treatment before a catastrophe occurs. And w for those reasons, um, several groups uh, together with our group here at Mayo um, are getting together to form a uh, multinational consortium um, um, to address these issues further. Fantastic. Well, that sounds like a really positive initiative. Hector, thank you so much. We really enjoyed reading this paper at heart. I think it's a really nice, clear description of a very important condition. And it certainly has a nice, practical, day-to-day -day element that we find very useful here. And I, I want to thank you for discussing it with us tonight as well, uh, particularly in light of, of the, the tragic death of the, the first author. And uh, since our sincere condolences for that, I only hope that by discussing it and using the podcast to broadcast this to as wide an audience as possible, uh, that we've really uh, helped uh, somehow to distribute this important research of Dr. Detent. Yes, it is. It is a great pleasure and, and honor for for me and in representation of the of the authors uh, to to um, um, 
um, discuss these issues uh, with you, Alistair. And uh, once again, we, we dedicate uh, our paper and this podcast to, to our first author um, and dearest friend, Delphine. Absolutely. The paper by Detente All, entitled Aortic Dilatation Patterns and Rates in Adults by Cuspid Aortic Valves, a Comparative Study of Marfan and Degenerative Aortopathy, can be found online at heart.bmj.com, along with the latest podcast. <laughs>